Kev. Welcome to the show, man. Well, no, thank you, Andre. First, I, I just, the question I want to say is like, why? Why you want a podcast? What, what are you trying to do? So the goal of this podcast is to essentially capture and share interesting stories, experiences, even life lessons. And so the idea is that how can these stories, right, shared through this platform, inspire others to do more than just chase the money? Right. So that brings us back to why you're here. So if we if we think about Kevin, how would you describe who you are today? Tell me about. about Wow, that's a great question, because, you know, what I I wrestle with this often and I define myself as a father first and a family man. I I look at myself Kevly from 20 years ago to Kevly today. I, I don't even know who I am because. The first thing I do, I wake up is what can I do to make sure my family is safe and secure, period. And then I go back to what I know most is like, well, the more money I have, the more I can keep them safe. (laughs) The more money I have, the more I can keep them secure. And the more I have, the more I can give them to do their not shopping, but go to school, invest in their education, invest in their experiences. Whereas 20 years ago, it was all self. before I had them, it's just like, all right, let's just make some money and fly around the world and hang out with my boys. So so I, I would say what motivates me is uh, I, I've been in sales all my existence, meaning presenting, convincing people to buy stuff. But when you become a family person or a father, it's it's like you learn to reduce yourself in order to elevate someone else. Or others. And so everything I do, I always say, they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, or why are you working? I'm like, because of y'all. <laughs> if I didn't have y'all, I wouldn't be working. What do you mean you won't work? I mean, I'll just be sitting around watching TV. I will be working. I mean, but I, I work because I have a greater purpose, which is right. their, their joy and their happiness. So it sounds like the source of your, one of the sources of your motivation is, is your family. They kind of inspire you. Yes. Yeah. And and it starts, they inspire me because they have things and dreams and and I just love to see them. I I get my success, not success, my joy from their vicarious experiences. So I vicariously live through them. When my little one, she there was a sale at the mall yesterday, some some clothing store. It was five dollars per item, the entire store. She was so happy. So her birthday is June 5th. It was June 3rd. She's like, Daddy, can I get my birthday present early? I was like, well, okay. And she's like, can you can you give it to me now? Because the sale ends yesterday at 8 p.m. So I gave her $100, $200. She's like, I came back with $72. She bought all these $5 items that just made her day. So wow. Like, yes, yeah, so I was kind of excited. I can't wait to see it later today, but. Well, I, I got to tell you, as a dad of a daughter, it's not too often you could uh, give give your daughter two hundred dollars and get back uh, any change at all. So you, that was a win. That's a win. That's a win right there. I'm sorry, I didn't get any change back. She just said what she brought back. I didn't. Oh. <laughs> that's more like it. That's more like it. That, that's what I'm accustomed to. That's for the next sale. Right, 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 right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So <laughs> if, if if I were to talk to your friends or 
family members, how would they describe you? Uh, they would they would describe me as jovial, excited, extroverted, and really I, I enjoy my quiet time. I enjoy time alone and reading, but they see me as happy and always positive. Uh, uh, I, I tell people I, I used to be, you know, some people see the world with a cup with 50% of it is half full, half empty. Well, I'm in sales. I see three cups. So I don't even see one. I see three. So I always see more than what's there. I always right. see the positive and, and everyone. Uh, I always try to see the silver lining. So I look at things from a positive light. That so so where, where does that come from? Talk about your upbringing. Where, where, where does the, the Kevin you are today, right? This happy, optimistic um, provider for family. Um, where does that come from? Talk about your upbringing and, 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 and the, the moments in your life that you think may have um, contributed to the, to the man you are today. Well, you know, it's funny because I look back now and as a young person, you don't know that you're poor, or at least you, because I call it relative deprivation. If you and your buddies in the neighborhood all live the same way, you don't know that you're poor because they're just like you. And you see things on TV and you just think it's not real. Well, my family, it was my mom, my brother, my, my older brother, my mother. We live with our grandfather and grandmother. And then we had uncles who always came because I thought they just wanted to live with us. So there was always people in the house, but that was because they fell on hard times and they needed to stay with granddad and they would take up a room or take up a couch. And it was mm-hmm. always different people always there. So as a child, I just, we had this two bedroom house, but it was always filled with people. And I thought that was normal because there's always someone there to engage or interact with us. And then as I got a little older, I realized they were there because they didn't have jobs or they were struggling or they had their women put them out or something. They had issues. So when I got in my teens, I started to see that, oh, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But it was a, a youthful, happy upbringing because everyone was was just there. And then my nickname was Smiley. So I, my mother told me that I was born smiling and I told her I was just glad to get out of there. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad to get out of here because my mother, she was real sweet. She moved on to heaven, but she used to drink and smoke. And I was like, I couldn't wait to get out of here. So when I got up, I started smiling and they say I've been smiling ever since. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so growing up, you saw where, you know, there was a lot of love in the home because they took in anyone that needed to be brought in. But at the same Anything time, you realized. Yeah. Your family members, right. Yeah. But at the same time, you realize that, yeah, this isn't the way you want to live in terms of not being able to take care of yourself and have to, having to rely on others. You said when you were a teenager, you realized that. Is that? But you know what? I, I think I grew up to be my grandfather. Because my Tell grandfather, my grandfather, he was such an open spirit. He's like, whoever needs a place to stay, come on. Because he, okay. he grew up as an only child. And this is... He was grew up to like 1906 as an only what was kid. His name? Uh, Mr. John Reed. John Reed. And he, he grew up as an only child. And back in those days, families had 10, 15 kids, eight kids. So he was always by himself. Mm. Uh, so 
when he got older, he wanted to have big families and he just, he hated a quiet house. He liked people being there. He liked sounds. He didn't like to be in a quiet house. So my grandmother, on the other hand, she's like, I want all these people in my house. And he always inviting in different family members and different things. Right. So I, I'm right. the same way. I'm a homebody. I like the, I like the sounds. I like people here. And, but he, I think I grew up to be him. When, when I went away, got into my teens and I saw other people, I saw that they had, it seemed like a isolated, like a isolated home because they didn't have the family room. They had big houses, but everyone had their own little wings where they stayed by themselves. They had their own bedroom, their own bathroom, and there was, they eat in their rooms by themselves. So they weren't all converging into one space. We had to do that because we only had the living room because the bedrooms were so small. So we were forced to commune together or to interact, which I didn't see that as a negative. I just saw that as different. And what we try to do here at my current home with my family is we try to have at least a time together at the dining room table where we get together and eat and have Mm. house meetings and do different Mm. things like that. Because if not, everyone will stay in their own world. Right, right. <laughs> and so that, that kind of comes from your grandfather, Mr. John Reed, just kind of that sense of family time, having people together. What did, what did your grandfather do for a living? Everyone in Pittsburgh that I was uh, connected with worked in the steel mills. Okay. So steel was really big. And he was a he was proud because during that time, during the 40s, 50s, 60s, he retired from the steel mill, I think 40 years in the steel mill. He was actually a supervisor. Back in those Mm. days, they wouldn't let black men be supervisors. Although he knew the machines, he knew how to do stuff way better than everyone there. They would only let him go up to be a supervisor. Mm. So he, but everyone worked in the mills. The mills paid good money back then. They paid, everybody had money. Everyone was flushed with cash. And also since they didn't give black men credit or they didn't have any black banks or whatever banks they were. He bought Mm -hmm. his stuff cash. When he bought his house, he saved up the cash to buy the house. When he bought his car, he saved up the cash to buy the car. So everything he did was on a cash basis. He did zero credit. Wow. Because I guess the, the day back there is like, if you don't have it, you don't get it. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's a, that's a valuable lesson that people today have lost in terms of living within your means, or better yet, below your means. Mm-hmm. And that you know they realize, they believe that credit is the answer to getting things that you can't afford. Exactly. Which is which is which actually is not the case. But it's clear to me that you learned from your grandfather not only the importance of family, uh, also being a good great provider, but it sounds like you also learned from him the importance of living at or below your means. Is that fair to say? I'd say two out of three is fair. <laughs> that below okay. my means part, when you get a family, that changes. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. below my means, but they take me so beyond the means. <laughs> <laughs> I would say if it works for me, I can't instill that in them, but they got to be way in another universe. <laughs> but I'm trying. I don't know how he kept grandma in check or how he even realized it, but uh, right, it's right, because right. they didn't have credit cards. So she could see if there was no cash, there was no cash. Right. Whereas here they see credit, 
They just add decimals to give you more money. Like, that's not the way it works. They just move the decimal over and like, oh, look, that hundred is now a thousand. No. <laughs> this is free money. Exactly. I'm like, man, I got to pay for that. So, so, so growing up, did you have uh, siblings and whatnot you grew up with? Tell me about your I had, I had one brother. Uh, he's a doctor now. He just retired from the Air Force. And he... Okay. He and I lived with my mother and my grandmother, grandfather. And then I was so happy because he's shorter than I am now. But, but when he was taller than me, he was like a terror. But then once I got his height and taller, he stopped being a terror and he was really cool. But uh, <laughs> I was so happy because I went away to a boarding school in 1981. So I was so happy to leave the house before he did. So I okay. left in 81 going to boarding school for my sophomore, junior, senior year in high school. And okay. then he left in 82 going to the Air Force. So yeah. we both split at that time. And I was most happy because in 2021, my brother moved to Florida in Tampa. So I'm in Tampa. He's in his little town called Brandon. But this is the first time we lived in the same area since 1981. So cool. yeah, so it's cool to have him here. Yeah, and now being in a boarding school, let's talk about that. I, I, my only experience or exposure to boarding school is from what I've seen on TV, where you know it's rowdy, a lot of affluent kids. Um, I have no idea what it, what it's really like. So, what, what was it like for you being in a boarding school? Well, there's this program that came out. It's called A Better Chance. It's called ABC. A Better Chance came out during the 60s, during the, I want to say 68, 69, during the civil rights era. And the minorities were upset that these upper echelon Ivy institutions were not admitting minorities into their establishments, into their colleges and universities. So they all got together out of Choate, Harvard, Princeton. These, these intellectuals got together and said, well, we'll form a program called A Better Chance and take minority kids, Black, Hispanics, Asians, who are, who have the mental capacity and the echo, the intelligence, uh, let's say the intelligent and intellectual foundation to compete at these uh, boarding schools. So my house was similar to the facts of life. We lived in a big house and there was three schools in the city called Appleton. And what they did is they, I was from Pittsburgh. There were some dudes from Cleveland, some from Chicago, uh, some from New York. We all lived in this house together. And what we did is we went to their public schools at the time, at their public schools in Appleton, Wisconsin. At the time, during the 80s, 81 through 84, the Fox River Valley area in Wisconsin had the highest ranking public school district in the country. So we went there. And it was actually fun. It was like the facts of life. Like I said, we lived in this big house. There was nine of us and then three would graduate. Then we bring in three more. So it was, it was a great experience to prepare us for college life. So then wow. after I graduated from there in 84, I moved to Dartmouth College for four years. So going to college was easy because I had already lived by myself or felt like I lived by myself for three years before I got the freshman year in college. So when I got to Dartmouth, I found out there was about, I met three or four other ABC brothers, sisters who were part of the program. 
when I graduated uh, in 88, I met a couple other black dudes and ladies who were ABC people who okay. I'm pretty sure the, the governor of Massachusetts, Patrick Duvall or Duvall or whatever. I think he was an ABC kid when he was younger. So wow. this program, wow. Oprah was one of our national spokesperson, I think from 97 and 2000, she was like the national one. Then Diana Ross was it for a while, but it's been a program that's been around since the 66 and, Wow. It's, it was yeah, a I, great experience. Yeah, I never heard of it before. It sounds like it's a great experience because mm-hmm. we think about, you know, kids that have a similar background as yourself and, and me included, where college it may be an idea, you know, when you're 10, 11, 13 years old. It might be an idea, but probably isn't. Oh. And then you get into high school and, you know, you, 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 let me speak for myself. There's a lot of distractions around there. College is like, yeah, maybe, possibly, if you're lucky. But when you have an opportunity like this where you're able to go to a boarding school where their focus is to prepare you for success in college, I mean, that's a game changer. Is that fair to say? Kind of. But you know, I, I think what happened is really about the relationships because when I went there, I had two host families that were assigned to me. So on the weekends... I would spend a, a weekend with the Aussie family, and then I would spend a weekend with the Stansberries. Well, my junior year in high school, my, Mr. Ozzy, who was a professor at Lawrence University, says, uh, all right, Kevin, what are you going to do? I say, I'm going to get a job in a mill like my grandfather. No. <laughs> he yelled at me. He's like, no, you're not. You're going to college. I'm like, why? Oh, okay, well, I could go to college night school because I just thought I'm from Pittsburgh. Everybody worked in the mill. So although I was doing well with the coursework, I didn't even think about college until he told me I wasn't getting a job wow. in the mill. So wow. how old were you at that time? I was a junior. I was like 17, wow. 16, 17. And he's okay. like, Jane, he thinks he's going to work in the mill. Tell him he's going to. So then when we got the... Uh, they got the college applications. I, was, I can remember it till this day. I was like, well, I'll go to the community college in Pittsburgh because I wanted to go to the mill because everybody made money there. My grandfather, my uncles. And he's like, no, you're not going to community college. I was like, all right, I'll go to University of Pitt. So they gave me a list of all these schools. They went and got the applications for Yale, Princeton, Harvard, Brown. Wow. Have you heard of any of those schools before? None. Zero. I've never heard of any of them. The only thing I heard of was Pitt and Penn State. And every right. time we beat up on Ohio or somebody, right. but I didn't, I've never heard of the Ivy League. And, and I, in my mind, I'm like, well, what's the difference between one college and the next? Two plus two is four. What's right. the difference? I didn't right. understand this prestige and all yeah. this elite madness. Network. So, that work. I mean, and that doesn't really work much for me either. So it's a different topic, but I, mm. so they gave me all these Ivy leagues. I looked at the price. I was like, I can't afford this. My family can't pay this. It was like 16,000 a year back then. In 80, wow. It's like, I learned a valuable lesson. It says money always follows talent. Get in mm. and then worry about the money later. If you don't get in, then you don't need the money. I was like, all right. So then when I got in, the money followed. So mm-hmm. I learned that if you got the talent, go for what you know, and the money will always help you get there. 
because right. you don't have the talent, it's not a concern. So once I I looked at I applied to Dartmouth only because it had the least amount of essays. Princeton had right. about seven. Harvard had like eight. Dartmouth, I right. think, had four. And I was like, well, if I right. got to do this, I'll just do this. And I only applied to Dartmouth. So I like that phrase there. Money follows talent. Yes. I like that. Yeah. yeah that's what I, 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 say it again. I'm sorry. That's what he told me. He's like, he's like, if you want to go to Oxford, get into Oxford, then worry about the money. Because if you don't get in, what's the use of worrying about it? Right. So a lot of times people worry about the 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 cart before the horse. Well, if you ain't got right. a horse, you can't pull the cart. Right. So get right, the horse right. first. Then worry about the, how big the cart is. Right. <laughs> right. Worry about how right. heavy the load is once you get the horse. But if you ain't got a horse, <laughs> what's the difference? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So then let's talk about Dartmouth, your experience there. Was was that like, oh man, this is this is this is everything. I'm gonna be I'm going to be rich once I graduate. What was no, as I, it didn't hit me until I think it was the fifth, sixth week I was at Dartmouth that it hit me that when I left Pittsburgh and like back to the relative deprivation, all my friends lived with their grandparents or whatever. No one had fathers at home. So I just, everything was normal. And you had the facts of life on TV. You had the different strokes, but that's TV. Well, when I got to Wisconsin, I thought those people were wealthy because they had their mother, their father. They, some of them had uh, four bedrooms, three bedrooms, big yards. I was like, man, these people must really be rich. When I got to Dartmouth, I realized Wisconsin was just middle class. They weren't rich at all. So I'm there, and one dude was John. He's like, oh, John, and we're we're in the same dorm, so we're all getting along, blah, blah, blah. Then I found out his last name is Rockefeller. He was like Whoa. the grandson, great great grandson of John D. Rockefeller. Then there that was, was your dude at Dartmouth. Yeah, his name was Nelson. Wow. I think it was Nelson. It was Nelson. It's I think his grandfather was a senator or something in New York. I mean, there's a ton of Rockefellers. Then there was another uh, dude who was Bosch or Lom. Last name was Bosch. Come to find out, his grandfather was like the Bosch and Lom and different things. So. When I got there, I've encountered extreme wealth. But as a freshman, you couldn't tell because we're all drinking and hanging out. And they're just like studying. Like I didn't realize they were wealthy until either their parents come up in their Bentleys or they say, Smiley, where are you going for Thanksgiving break? I was like, well, I got to stay here because I ain't got enough money to get home. I'm going to stay on campus. Oh, I'm, right. I'm flying to Switzerland in my jet for the weekend. Switzerland, what you going over there for? They got Thanksgiving. <laughs> so it didn't click until you see their wealth come in or you go to a, a hall or a building and their grandfather's name is on the building. I'm like, wow, these dudes are paid. So people right. in Wisconsin was just like middle class, maybe upper middle class, but Dartmouth had wealth. Here's a funny story for you, Dre. Yeah. Met this black dude. First first week on campus, met this black dude. He's like, "Yeah, I'm a." Well, one second, one second. I got a message here saying your browser is limiting the storage available to Riverside. Make sure you are not in incognito mode when you exceed your storage limit. An automatic backup recording will start. Oh, okay. Huh? Okay. All right, keep going. No, I we'll met this black I mean. dude. I'm walking across the the the, uh, 
Dartmouth. Dartmouth is like a big square. So I'm walking through the, the, the courtyard or the square and meet this black dude. And he's like, oh, hi. I'm like, hi. He's like, I'm the prince of Ethiopia. I'm like, wow, I never met a prince before. I'm all excited. So right. I walk in and I meet this other dude. He's like, yeah, I'm the prince of Ghana. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what is all these brothers saying they the prince? So then... The next brother I met, this dude was from New York. I was like, man, I'm the Duke of Pittsburgh. <laughs> he like, man, and then I come to find out these two brothers were princes. <laughs> hilarious. It was That's like hilarious. Haley Selassie, whatever, who was the, the, the king of Ethiopia. He had like a yeah. thousand grandkids or something. <laughs> he was really right, right. a prince. And I was just like, Wow, it just it just cracked me up that there was so many different types of people you read about, but it didn't hit me. Um, I mean, until I got until I started working making my own, their wealth didn't impress me because it wasn't mine. So how did how did it like change your outlook, or did, did it did it did it motivate you? Because because what I'm hearing from your story is that there's different levels or different points in your life where you were exposed and your horizon was raised, right? So at one point you were thinking, okay, yep, I'll, I'm going to be like my grandfather in terms of work and I'll work at the mill. And then you, you mentioned that you went to Wisconsin and you're like, oh, these people are wealthy. And then you went to Dartmouth and you were like, oh no, this is what, re- what wealth really is. And also while you're at, at, at uh, ABC, you were like, oh yeah, I'll go to Pitt. And then you realize, well, no, there's something higher out there for me in terms of uh, Dartmouth and other Ivy Leagues. So once you got there, what was the, what was the impact for you in terms of how it, how, how did it change your perspective, you know, in terms of what well, opportunity see, was for you? Just the only thing I would change with your description is, I didn't realize those changes. I was told, for example, okay. I was told I wasn't going to Pitt, and I was told that I was going to the Ivy League. And then I was told that I was going to, for example, the 401k. Mm-hmm. When I got my first job out of college, there's 30 of us filling out the W-2s and all this stuff, paperwork. And the guy's like, just do 15%. I was like, 15%, what does that mean? And the guy's like, I'm going to just do what he says. And I was like, I'm going to do what he says. So I did 15% to this thing called 401k. Mm-hmm. It was 2000, not 2000, 1992. I get a statement with, my name next to all these digits, like $30,000. I thought it was a mistake. I called them up. I was like, hey, I got this. And they were like, oh, it's yours. I was like, mine? I ain't never seen that many digits next to my name. So I tried to cash it out. <laughs> they were like, no, you can't cash it out. I was like, what do you mean? So once again, a lot of things, exactly. so a lot of things that I did was because I had angels or whatever people telling me to do the things that was ended out to be the right thing. But I didn't really have any understanding of what I was doing. And because I was my grandfather instilled this, my brother and I, we would cut grass, shovel snow. We would do little handy jobs for people at the church, get paid. I was never impressed with someone else's money because I was always working for my own. Because yeah. just because my uncles had a lot of money from, from working, they wouldn't give it to me. So I had to work and do whatever. So I was never really impressed by others' money because I always wanted to get my own. 
And I figured yeah. if I got a job at the mill, I would get it. If I got a job or went to school at Pitt, I would get it. So I never thought about, oh, these tournaments are going to give me a better opportunity to make more money. I just looked at yeah. it as like they told me I got to go there, so I got to go. So I Okay. Yeah, okay. so it wasn't. And it actually, in hindsight, in hindsight, I think I would have gone to a better, been better served going to HBCU. Tell me I, about that. Tell me about that. How would that have been for you? Well, I, I didn't realize being raised in Pittsburgh and going to Wisconsin, I wasn't exposed to historically black colleges and universities. I heard of Morehouse, Tuskegee, Howard, and I think Cheney. That was it. I've only heard of those four until I feel so sad to say this until around 2015. I didn't realize there was over 200 of them. I just thought it was those big four or Morehouse. Everyone heard of Morehouse. And I remember we applied to United Negro College Fund, but they said you had to go to a black school to get it. Well, I was already accepted to go to Dartmouth. I was trying to raise some money and, um, they were like, no, you got to go to the black school or you don't get this. I was like, well, my mind isn't terrible and it's going to get wasted. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just say, oh, well, so I, I, when I meet people from brothers from historically black colleges and university or even the sisters, they have a certain camaraderie. It's like an extended family. And when they get together, it's like a reunion. It's, they have so many bonds and connections. I would right. say from my Dartmouth experience, I can label four people I would call as friends. Uh, three blacks, 20, one white. One a year. Yeah, it's like three blacks and one white. <laughs> so think of it. That's what I would call close friends, good friends. When when you came to my party, there was two Dartmouth brothers in that party. You probably, you know one, but you probably didn't know the other one. But there was only two there. Whereas when I see these 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 graduates from HBCUs, yeah, they have they they're they're going on trips together. They're they're part of each other's weddings. They're part of each other's lives. They're godparents, and they just have a certain bond and a sense of confidence that yeah. when you meet when I meet brothers from these schools, they have a certain air of confidence. Uh, they know their history. They know themselves, and it's just a uh, they don't get the mental abuse from some of these non HBCUs. So, but yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't regret my experience. I had a great time at Dartmouth, but if yeah. I would do it over again, I would probably do HBCU undergrad and do Ivy grad. Okay. Makes sense. Makes mm-hmm. sense. So once you left Dartmouth, um, what, what was next for you in terms of the, the, the next pivotal moment in your life where, you, you know, you just, Started finding yourself and I, uh, coming. I, I did. I did have certain issues because when I got the Dartmouth, that's when I first exposure also to black people with money. I I've never, well, like I said, relative deprivation. Wisconsin, it was all white people, and Pittsburgh it was black people, but they were all like me, broke and poor. And then when I yeah. got to Dartmouth, I met black wealth. I mean, people have money, so. My motivation when I got a job was I wanted to, I literally saw myself around these people like Jimmy Walker and they were Carlton and Hillary's. Seriously, they just had so many broad experiences and I I always felt, well, they are not smarter than me, but they just got a better, they got a, a easier step, I thought. 
So I was like, well, I'm going to work so I can get to their level of, of wealth or experiences. So, so they inspired you, motivated you. Not as, I would say they, they saw me because now that I saw that they did it, I was like, well, I could do it. Why right, didn't right. my family do it? And then I thought if my, if my uncles or my grandfather, if they knew how to harvest their dollars or even invest it in, instead of saving it in the, the safe under the bed, their money and put it in the market or bought real estate or thought with a, yeah. had a little bit more of a financial acumen, we could have been the same as them. But I use that to say, when I graduated, I was trying to chase love. So I was like, all right, I'm Jimmy Walker. My Hillary dumped me because I didn't have any money. So I thought, so I was for the first four or five years, my goal was to make enough money to get my Hillary back. And then once I got enough money, I didn't want the Hillary anymore. I was like, man, look at all these hobbies. There's so many more. I went to LA. There was so many more. I was like, wow. (laughs) 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 I'm serious. They got Gabriel Unions. Holly Berries. Holly Berries. I was like, oh, man, Hillary, I got to leave you alone. So, you know, it's funny, even in that example, and I'm hearing a, 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 a pattern here where you, at, at different key points in your life, you were exposed to, you know, a, a, the horizon just continues to rise in every aspect of your life, whether it's, you know, education possibilities. Once you're exposed to what's, you know, out there, you realize, oh, okay, well, since I'm being told to do this, I'll do it. And you realize, oh, okay, so this is like a, a, a tier up above because this is where the the Blosh alums go. This is where the, and then you saw black wealth. You're like, oh man, I've never seen anything like this. So another layer of exposure, we realized, okay, I can do the same thing they're doing, right? You know, I just, I didn't realize you could do this, but now that I know, I'm going to do it too. And then even with dating, you, you know, at one point you realize, well, you know, why, why settle for uh, a penny? Like I have a, you know, a sale full of dimes, you know? So, exactly. so, so yeah, so it, it's interesting where, and you touched on this earlier, the network, right? How important that is because it, it can expose you to what, and, 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 and as you're talking, I'm thinking about my son who's 14 and my daughter actually, but, um, you know, how can I expose them to things like what you've shared, you know, so that they realize there's more out there than in the space they live in? You know what I, that's a great question because my wife and my daughter, my daughter's just turning 15 tomorrow, June 5th. So what we decided, she'll be 15. In these 15 years of her life, she's been to nine states in about six countries. So we feel that by exposing her, by taking her places, she'll vicariously, or not vicariously, she'll physically experience different cultures, different environments. I didn't even realize, I went out to visit a a Dartmouth friend, a black Dartmouth friend who lives in the Bay. We got on the Golden Gate Bridge. She's like, I've always wanted to go on the Golden Gate. This is like, she was 11. I was like, I didn't know that. And she was so enamored with the Golden Gate Bridge because in her school, she'd been reading about it or different things. Took her on a cruise. We went to Mexico and the Belize. 
But I think by, and, and not to say you got to take them out of the country or take them to different places, but by them being with you, seeing different areas, different cultures, experiencing different peoples, it broadens their horizon. So I was talking to her the other day. She's like, I don't know if I want to go to the college in the United States. I'm like, all right, where do you want to go? She's like, maybe New Zealand, maybe Africa, maybe Europe. She's just her whole vision. My whole vision was Pittsburgh, <laughs> Wisconsin, Pittsburgh. Then I was told to go to New Hampshire. And I didn't even, when back then, I was like, New Hampshire? What do I got to go up there for? We got schools all in I was like, all these schools in Pennsylvania, why well, have to go there? <laughs> like, it just made zero sense to me. But her, her, her whole vision is is so much global. It's just her whole scope. Her friends are now like the United Nations. She has friends from India. She has friends from Latin America, from Europe, Eastern Europe, and they're all like the little Benetton. She doesn't even know what Benetton is, but remember the Benetton commercial. All the rainbow people, that's her whole click there. And I'm just so proud of her and her friends. But the one thing I want to I want to mention about the exposure, even up till 98, 99, even till day till this day, I know our mutual friend from Dartmouth exposed me to private equity. I was never, I had no idea that world existed. The stock market, no idea that existed. Um it's a funny story. 1992, 93, I was doing, 92, I was doing really well at my company. It was called Computer Associates. And they said, this is right after Rodney King. Uh, so my boss, he says, Kevin, he brings me in on a Friday. Kevin, you're doing extremely well. We want to give you stock options. And I sat there and I looked him in his face, little short dude. I said, Bob, Thanks for these options, but I don't want them. Give me a raise. I'd rather have the cash. He's like, no, this is better than cash. I was like, dude, I don't, I don't want the options. Give me the cash. And he said, well, I've never had anyone reject options. You think about it on Monday. Tell me what to do. And then I'll call up HR to figure out how to reject the options. It's like, okay. At my party was my CPA for since 1989, Carl. I call up Carl. I say, Carl, these dudes trying to get over on me. They told me they told me they was giving me options instead of a raise. I was like, man, I don't want your options. Carl yelled at me first time ever for 30 minutes straight. I had no idea what he was talking about. He's like, you go in there on Monday and tell them you want those options. It was like 500 options. To fast forward, I used those options to buy it. At one time, I had up to nine houses. I used those options to buy every house I had because I would sell the options, buy a house cash, sell more options, buy another house cash. Wow. And I almost rejected them. So after I ate some humble pie, which was easy, I'm in sales. Bob said, okay, you spoke to someone. I was like, yeah, I don't understand what he said, but he told me they were good, and I I still have no knowledge. The next day, Andre, I canceled Ebony, Jet, all those type type of social magazines, signed up for Forbes, Money, Fortune, Success. I just subscribed to all of them, and I started reading. And it's a journey. During the journey, I learned a whole bunch. But from 92 to 98, 99, I learned about the stock market. I had no idea about angel investing, private equity. Then our other mutual friend from Dartmouth, he exposed me to that world because he was in it. He was doing it. So 
every time you get pulled up to another level yeah. from your experiences, from talking yeah. to people. Um, yeah, it's just phenomenal how life works. <laughs> it is, it is. Speaking of which, so if you think about your life today, right, compared to where you were as a teen, let's say 15 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I want you to tell me first, what would you tell your 15-year-old self, right, to about about life in general? What would you say to your 15-year-old self? And I have a follow-up question after that. I would say 15-year-old self, uh, dude, it's going to be good. Everything's all right and continue being happy uh, and and learn four languages. I say learn more. Uh, Broaden your horizon. Don't stay in your zone. Get out of your comfort zone. Get into into something that's foreign to you because although I've had good advice, I would say along the way, Someone could have given me some bad directions, like don't go to steel or don't get a job, go into the Marines. Not to say the Marines are going into the Army is bad, but I could have, he would have said, you know what, it's Jane, he needs to go into the Air Force because he has good grades. Go to the Air Force. I'd have probably gone there because I was just such, I knew what was right and wrong, what was illegal and illegal coming from my neighborhood. So I figured as long as I'm not illegal, everything's cool. But I didn't have my own des- desires or dreams. So I would say right. just define your own vision. And, and instead of being directed to where you're going, control your own destiny a little bit. Okay. And then think 10 years ahead, right? And let's say you were talking to yourself 10 years from now. You, you, you were able to send yourself a message into the future, mm-hmm. right? What would you tell your, what would that message read? What would it say if you were ready? Kevin, I'm so glad we're living in Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad those nurse finders and Airbnb is, sub- is the providing revenue for us to live here on this Costa Rican city in San Jose that's close to the equator. <laughs> and and we're in a country where there's no guns and no one's killing everybody and you just chilling and uh everything my metaverse is so cool so that's what i'm gonna say i look at 65 as i want to retire from the hustle and grind but i want to like a, this, the beginning is always the end of is the beginning of something else so i want to end this corporate america life but I want to mm-hmm. say, give back more. Maybe I'll do, write more books, or maybe I'll pontificate, uh, spend time with the youth, or whatever. But I'm definitely going to be in a in a tranquilo, relaxed mode in ten years from now. Because right. yeah, I'll be fifty five then, so I should be retired. I should not have to carry my daughter. Will be twenty five. Uh, she should be in, on her way out of grad school, hopefully. Uh, yeah. hopefully no kids, but if there are kids then I'm spending time with the grands, if there are no kids, then I'll be reading a book, philosophizing with somebody. <laughs> yeah. Before I let you go here, you, 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 uh, dropped a little nugget there, writing more books. So you've written a book. I wrote 10. You wrote 10 books. 10 books. So I wrote 10. What, which one are you the most proud of, of the 10? The first one, I think the first one has the most impact. It's almost sometimes people say, oh, well, my first Super Bowl ring is the one I cherish most. Uh, my first book is called Life Minutes, and and it, it taught me not to fear death in the sense that 
my mother was on her deathbed and she had she was about to move on to heaven and she 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 was a little fire firecracker so she's like here take my phone call my brother so she i call her brother she's in the bed i'm not gonna be here so you need to do this she's trying to tell him what to do because she's the older sister then she's like call my sister i call them call Teresa. call all her friends all these people are now moved on and i'm like i get emotion emotional after the fifth call like hey I don't want to hear all this. Why am I here? She's like, shut up. Call the next person. <laughs> so she called. And then we had a moment. I was like, mom, what am I going to do when you're gone? And she's like, when you're gone, she's like, you'll be all right. I'm going to go see my grandmother, my grandfather. I said, you had a grandmother? <laughs> so, you know, I only know about that. I'm like, you had a life before I got here? <laughs> And she's like, here's simple ass call. And I was just like, and she was just like, so, because she's been in church all her life. So she's like, well, I'm going to go home and see my grandfather. So she was ready to transition. She had cancer. She was tired. She was just like, I'm going to go see my family and you'll be okay. And Mm -hmm. and it just hit me that she had a life before I even got here. Because I only knew my grandmother and grandfather, which was her mother. But I never met her grandmother or her great grandmother or her grandfather. And it just never dawned on me that she had uncles and aunties that moved on before I was born. And she just was so mellow. So I called it, my book was called Life Minutes, which says every minute matters because at one point you're going to get there when you know these are the last 10 minutes. So I was fortunate that spare share the last 24 hours with my mother while she was in her bed and her voice went away. That's the first thing that goes, they stopped speaking and then she just faded off in her sleep. So the book is called life minutes. I dedicated it to her, my father, the guy who raised me, I called my biological father. He passed the year before she passed a year later. So I wrote this book about for them and it's about how does time matters and how do you get the most out of it? Nice. Where can they find your books? With, with Amazon.com. And it's only okay. a dollar. And if they email me at Kevin Maurice Lee at gmail.com, I'll send them a free copy if they don't want to pay a dollar. Okay. All of them are Amazon, Amazon.com. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, that Life Minutes is the one that I, I really like the most. And then Just Do No Glaze. Just Do No Glaze is about financial, financial stuff. And I got a YouTube channel with the same title, Just Don't Know Blaze. And it's bare bone financials with uh, none of the fluff. So it's a no glaze on it, just no hype, raw. Nice, man. Well, listen, thanks for gotten a lot of life lessons from you. Uh, <laughs> hopefully those that are watching and listening have gotten the same. Oh, thank you, dude. For sure. Good times, man. Thanks for your time. All right.